offering on the last verse. Nothing between in many hard trials, though the whole world against me can lean. Watching with prayer and much self-denial, triumph at last with nothing between. Nothing between my soul and the Savior. So that his blessed face may be seen, nothing preventing the least of his favor. Keep the way clear, let nothing be between. Good to see everyone here this morning. Let's bow for prayer together. And as we do, Brother Jeff Hart, would you lead us, please? number 357.
Skip and I has a special this morning. Thank you, Lord, for playing the organ. It's good.
on that special. I appreciate hearing it. Uh, thank you all for being here this morning. I invite you to open back to the letter of Jude with me. And we will move into the Bible study portion of our time together. We saw last Sunday morning as we began our study of this letter that Jude introduced himself as a slave of Jesus Christ. And there really are, are three important things uh, to, to take away from his description of himself in such a manner. Jude's uh, description of himself as a slave of Jesus Christ demonstrates first a, a healthy understanding of God's supremacy. It puts God in the place that he deserves. Now this will be very important. I hope the baby isn't expressing what the rest of you are feeling <laughs> at this point. <laughs> it's good to have a baby here. I haven't had to preach over a baby in a long time and I'm glad to, to be uh, to have that privilege again. So, the last ones, I think, were my own kids. So, <laughs> that's different. A healthy understanding of God's supremacy comes out of this. What does that mean? It means that we understand or we put God in His place. We put God in His place. What place does God deserve in our lives? He deserves the place of being put first. He is our Creator. He is our Lord. And as our Savior, as our Savior, He also becomes our Lord and Master. Jude wants to express that, and we know he wants to express that, because the false teachers that will, will make their way or have already made their way among the churches to whom Jude writes, one of the characteristics that those false teachers will demonstrate or manifest in the world is a, re a rejection or a denial of the authority and lordship of Jesus Christ. Now I want you to be reminded of this again. If you look at verse 4 of the letter of Jude, notice these words. There are certain crept in unawares who were before of old ordained to this condemnation. Ungodly men. Now notice what they do though. They turn the grace, they turn the grace of our God into lasciviousness and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Now what Jude is expressing here is that these false teachers will actually change the grace of God. They will change the grace of God into lasciviousness, that is, into a lustful lifestyle, a completely and totally unrestrained life. They will say that the grace of God means that you can live in any unrestrained way that you choose. The other thing that they will do is they will reject the only, and then Jude uses the word despot. They will reject the master. They will reject the owner. 
they will reject the Lord. But notice that he refers to him to the Lord as the only owner, the only despot. So the false teachers will be ones who are denying the only owner that there is. Who's our only owner? Our only owner. If we have a healthy understanding of the gospel and grace of Jesus Christ, our only owner is God Himself. And so he says, denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. So they're going to advocate that God's grace equals lasciviousness. We'll talk more about what that means in, in services to come. But one of their characteristics is that they reject the ownership of Christ and the ownership of God. So Jude, from the outset, demonstrates in, in the way he describes himself a healthy understanding of the supremacy of God. Number two, and I quickly want to review these, by describing himself as the slave of God, he presents a sound view of salvation. Believing in Jesus subjects us to the lordship of Jesus and transfers us from being slaves to sin to being slaves to God. Paul writes of this in Romans 6. He writes of this also in, uh, in the, his letter to the Colossians in chapter 1. He will speak of, of believers being transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of His dear Son. Any proper view of salvation confronts us with being moved from one type of person and one type of life and belonging to one kingdom into a completely different person, a completely different kind of life, and a completely different kingdom. Thirdly, describing himself then as the slave of God in light of the other two brings... Jude, or, or provides Jude, excuse me, authenticity in writing. He is distinguishing himself or contrasting himself with the false teachers. The false teachers deny the lordship and ownership of God. Jude, from the outset, presents himself as one who recognizes it. So, if you have a healthy understanding of God's supremacy and a sound view of salvation, then getting a letter from someone who describes himself as a slave of God gives that individual credibility. It gives him authenticity. And it contrasts him from those who deny the, the ownership and the lordship of God himself. Now what Jude is, is trying to do here, in, in part, is to establish clarity of identity. And clarity of identity and certainty about our identity are essential for engaging in this struggle that we talked about last week that, that Jude's co congregates were in, that Jude himself was in, and that we all are in. Being a child of God through Jesus Christ brings us into a struggle. 
And this struggle has existed since at least the Garden of Eden. It has existed in the world since then. And you and I are involved or engaged in that struggle. And we need to be clear on our identity and we need to be certain of our identity to appreciate the responsibilities that that brings to us or for us, but also that helps us to distinguish between truth and error. Now, you and I are involved in a struggle over truth and error. And for a long time, we, I think, just to offer you my historical interpretation for a bit, for most of our, life, of our lifetimes, if you're, say, over the age of 30, for most of our lifetimes, we were privileged to live in a world where we were really unchallenged in our freedom to believe, to preach, and to practice as we believe the Word of God to teach. We did that without much pushback, although at the beginning of the 20th century, coming out of Germany, there were a series of ideas that were associated with, re with religious liberalism that made their way like wildfire through American churches. But more and more, we are confronted with, with having to, to really emphasize to people who claim to believe the Bible, to people who go to church, that being a child of God brings with it moral responsibilities. And it brings with it also an obligation to live in a way that is consistent with the truth. You cannot merely virtue signal as a believer. Your Christianity can't just be something that, that motivates you to vote in a certain way every two or four years or to make certain kinds of social media posts. But that's as far as it goes. Instead, a healthy, proper understanding of salvation brings us into a particular worldview of looking at the difference between truth and error where truth is defined not merely by the Word of God, but by the person of God, by the fact of His existence. But also, where a healthy understanding of salvation brings us to understand that we should now live in certain ways that are consistent with that salvation. There's a picture of God that we are responsible for presenting to the world but also among ourselves. And therefore, not just any kind of teaching will go and not just any kind of living is acceptable. Instead, being a believer in Jesus Christ and being a true New Testament church brings with us the responsibility of engaging in this struggle, and the first place where we engage in this struggle is here, right here amongst ourselves. And that's because the danger of false teaching and the appeal 
of worldly lifestyles has currency even among God's own people. And if we aren't clear on who we are and if we aren't certain on what our responsibilities are supposed to be, then we will become lazy or complacent in protecting the identity of ourselves which is wrapped up in the truthfulness of the gospel which is wrapped up in the character and nature of God. This is important. So we have to be clear on what our identity is. And it doesn't just bring with us bring bring to us though some responsibilities, it also brings with us to us, excuse me, some wonderful certainties about our position. And that is what we need to think about for a few minutes now as we turn to the end of Jude 1. Yes, last week we didn't make it past the fourth word. Today I hope to make it all the way to the end of verse 2. It's an ambitious undertaking, but I think we can do it. I think we can do it. So, the overall thought that I want us to think of, to have this morning is the importance of having confidence in our position. Clarity of our identity, confidence about our position. And we get to confidence and position, or we get to that position in which we should have some confidence, in Jude's description of the recipients of his letter. He calls himself the servant of Jesus Christ and the brother of James. That helps identify which Jude this is. But then now he identifies his audience. He writes to them that are sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ and called. Now that's a bunch of things. But actually, let's come back here for just a minute because we can break this down, and Jude's language is actually a bit simpler to understand. There's one overall description that Jude gives, or descriptor, that Jude gives of the recipients of his letter. There's one overarching word that he uses. And then, as people who fit into this category there are also two other things that are true about them. All right, so let's go with the overarching term first. Jude identifies the recipients of his letter as the called ones. Now, if you're looking at the King James Version, for example, then that word called comes at the very end. And it comes at the end because it is actually the last word in the sentence. However, Jude actually writes in a way that if we were listening in his language or if you're reading along in his language, he's holding us off until that last word. All right? So what we would if we translated this literally, and, and pay attention to how this doesn't make any sense, he said, to the ones, he says, to the ones in God, the Father, having been loved and having been kept in Jesus Christ, called, called ones, where 
the at the beginning and called ones at the end actually go together. And they can do that in Greek in ways that make no sense to us in English. All right? So his, his important overarching category in which he places the recipients of his letter is that they are called ones. That is, they are ones who are called. Now, this is an important New Testament concept, and I want us to look at this uh, in some other places as well, because Jude isn't the only New Testament writer who refers to the recipients of his letter in this way. Paul is the other one. Paul is the other one. So let's go look, for example, at Romans chapter 1. We'll look at Romans chapter 1 and 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And I want you to see this as just a, a broad term that New Testament writers use to refer to the recipients of their letters. And it must take in a whole bunch of different theological realities that are being gathered up and collected in this one term. So in Romans chapter 1, <clears throat> Paul says that he is writing, un, uh, chapter 1 verse 2, excuse me, unto the church of God, whoops, I'm sorry, I'm reading the one from 1 Corinthians first. I didn't go a book far enough. My apologies. Verses 6, verses six and 7. Among whom, he says, among whom are you also the called of Jesus Christ to all that be in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, let's look at Romans chapter 8 and verse 28. My guess is that you are familiar with what this verse says, but let's look at it together. Romans 8:28 And then we'll look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 24. Romans 8:28 We know that all good things work together for good to them that loved God that love God, excuse me, to them who are the called according to his purpose. And finally, 1 Corinthians 1.24. 1 Corinthians 1 and 24. In writing about the gospel of the crucifixion of the Messiah, Paul says this, But unto them who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Now, I want to be very cautious because the, uh, the reemergence of Calvinist doctrine uh, in the United States over the last ten years has been on, on, on its face a surprising development, but also means that I need to be very cautious in how I go about explaining this. Now Calvinism, Calvinism for those of you don't, who don't know, uh, Calvinism is predestinarian Christian doctrine. There is something that's going on in the United States in general where uh, predeterminism or just generally determinism from Marxist thought 
to secular philosophy and even in Christianity itself, determinism has taken off as wild, like wildfire again. So my guess is most of you kind of assume that based upon your genes that you inherited from your family, that there are certain things like impatience or anger or having a short temper and that you can't help any of that because it's pre-wired into you and therefore it's determined that you act that way. And it is, it is, but that goes back to Adam and has something to do with sin and not so much to do with your own particular family. But in terms of economic circumstances, uh, the development of gangs in big cities, Marxism, for example, Marxist thought and all the iterations that it has introduced into our society and all the little permutations where it has taken over various academic fields. Marxism is a determinist idea. And so people can't help being poor. People can't help their gang violence. People can't help engaging in the vices that they engage in because the social and economic circumstances in which they live determine that that's how they are going to behave. And then there's been Calvinism, which has made its way through the Southern Baptist churches, is making its way through ABA church cousins in the BMA. And what it is is the idea that, that God predetermined before he ever created the world who would be saved and who would be lost. That God has a, a, a list of names that he chose before the foundation of the world and they and only they would ever be saved. Jesus' death was not universal for everyone, but Jesus' death was only for those that God elected. And that eventually, through the course of events, those that God had chosen, He would call them to, to the realization of their position. Now notice what I said. He they wouldn't hear the gospel and respond to it in faith and humility. No, in real hard-shell Calvinist doctrine, those who are elected to salvation will eventually be awakened to their position. They will not come to be graciously given that through a proper, healthy response to the gospel of Jesus Christ. They'll just simply come to realize that God had chosen them to be saved. And hence, only the elect in Calvinist thinking, only the elect are the called. Now, what is happening in Calvinism is the manipulation of biblical terminology. Is it true that the saved are the elect? Yes that we're the chosen ones or the choice ones. But what we have to understand is that the New Testament terms that are used are qualitative terms. They are not quantitative terms. Meaning that the call, that there's not just a, a kind of, there's a pool of the called and there's only a limited number of them and only a limited number will be saved. Now it's true that few will be saved. But again, I don't want to go down that because I'll never get back. All right? But the idea that there was just a short list from the start and your name's either on the list or off the list, 
God either chose you to be on the list or He rejected you to be on the list. That is not a biblical idea. Instead, elect or chosen is a descriptor of the quality of all believers. We are God's choice ones. We are, uh, we're, we're like the, the tomatoes that you pick when you sort through them in the, uh, in the grocery store or the onions or the avocados, whatever it is you go for. You, you don't just say, well, any old one will do. No, you want the ones that are top quality. And from God's point of view, of all creation, those who are the choicest, that is the, the top quality, are those who come to faith in Jesus Christ. Now also, another descriptor that the New Testament uses of us is that we're called. We're called one. And with this terminology, whether you go back and you look at the full context of Romans 1 or you look at the full context of Romans or 1 Corinthians 1.24, what you will see is this. Called, called ones appear to be a, de, a descriptor of those who have been persuaded of the truthfulness of the gospel and thus of the efficacy of of the crucifixion of Jesus, the historical reality of His resurrection, and the theological implications of both. In other words, we recognize that Jesus is the Son of God. We believe that through the crucifixion of Jesus that God paid for human sin. We believe that He completed the work of salvation through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We acknowledge and understand that the resurrection of Jesus is, is one of the indicators or, or proofs that Jesus is in fact God and then the called also embrace a distinct way of living based upon identification with God through Christ. So that Paul can write to the Romans... And he writes to those who are called. It is a positional descriptor. We hold the position of being the called ones of God. We have heard the gospel. We have believed the gospel. We have embraced the implications of the gospel for our own lives and way of living. All believers fit into this category. We are the called ones. Jude writes to the called ones. To the called ones. He doesn't give a location for them. He does not give a specific uh, descriptor like that they, are, uh, that, they're, that they are a church or that they form a plurality of churches. Instead, what Jude wants to highlight is this distinct and unique position that the recipients of his letter have. From God's point of view, they're the called. So they are the called ones. Then, he comes, in the course of getting to that point, Jude offers two other explanations or realities about those who hold the position of being called. 
All right? So if you're the called ones of God, yes, it's true you embrace the gospel. You understand the importance of the crucifixion and the resurrection and of the deity of Christ. You understand that coming to believe in Jesus Christ means that we now identify through our lifestyles with Jesus Christ. But there's two other important things, at least for Jude's purposes, two other important realities about the called. And here, this is something for us just to consider, to be overawed with, and to be thankful for. First of all, for the call, Jude describes them as, and in the King James Version it's translated as sanctified. If you're looking at a, at a more recent English translation, it will say to those who have been loved. More than likely, loved is the proper term that we should understand here. And so, Jude is saying that those who are the called are ones who have been loved in God the Father. We're ones who have been loved. Now, I want to break down what this means, but I also want you to see that this is, yet again, a consistent way that New Testament writers describe the position of the believer. So let's go look at some other places for just a minute. Let's look, first of all, at Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. We have to have clarity on our position in Christ. And there's a consistent way that the New Testament refers to believers in Jesus Christ. We are called, but we are also ones having been loved by God. In Colossians chapter 3 and, and verse 12, we read as follows. Put on therefore... Now notice, we get all these terms together. As the elect of God, that is, as the choice ones of God, holy and beloved. Holy and beloved is not a descriptor of God. It is a descriptor of the Colossians, the Colossian believers. From God's point of view, the Colossian believers are holy ones, and from God's point of view, they are ones having been loved. Ones having been loved, and the implication of that terminology is that they've been loved by God in the past, and they stand as ones loved by God in the present. There is a permanency to this position of being loved by God. Let's look at this also in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Verse 4. Here this comes again. Similar terminology to what we've been using already. Paul says of the Thessalonians, since you know, or literally knowing, brethren, brothers, having been loved, your election of God. Look at the description here. Paul refers to the Thessalonians as ones having been loved, 
and then we can dispute what the exact way to translate this is, but one's having been loved by God is probably the core idea. Finally, one other place. I won't go through all of them with you, but look at uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 13. Second Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 13. We are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren, having been loved of the Lord, because God has from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. Wherefore, He called you by our gospel to the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Here, Paul describes the Thessalonians as ones having been loved of the Lord. He, dis- he describes them as having been chosen, and he describes them as called through the gospel. All of those ideas are present. So if you're called, you're chosen, And if you're called, you're ones, you can know for sure that we're ones having been loved by God. Now let's let's work our way back though as we come as we return to Jude chapter one and just think about for a minute the importance of this terminology. To say or to describe believers as ones having been loved in God. What does this terminology suggests. What is the importance of it? Well, first of all, first of all, the terminology leads us to the conclusion that we can know that in God we have been loved and we stand loved. Now, we don't always have that certainty in life, do we? Let me ask you something. In the world, are you guaranteed of being loved? On an individual level, you say, well, my parents ought to love me, but we also know from the Scriptures, do we not, that one of the characteristics of sinful man is that they lack natural affection. Even the people who should love you, like your parents, not everybody experiences that. You can be in a marriage and your spouse take actions, behaviors that while they tell you they love you on the one hand, on the other hand seem to suggest that they don't. Or as believers in Jesus Christ, what is our relationship with the world? Is this world a a welcoming, open and friendly place to believers or does the New Testament give us an entirely different portrait? gives us an entirely different portrait, picture. The world is our enemy. We're told not to be friends of the world. That the, enemy, that the world itself is hostile to God. Where do we go to be certain that we're loved? Well, we know as believers in Jesus Christ, if anybody lives with the certainty of being loved, it should be we who live with that certainty. Because being loved by God is certain 
because it is a position that we hold. We are ones having been loved and who stand loved in God. In God, in the realm of God, in the, in the world of God, we know we've been loved. And we know we are loved. And notice that, that for just a moment this takes it out of how you and I might individually feel at any given moment. It takes it out of the realm as well of the treatment that we receive by others. You and I know for certain that God loves us. If we know anything for certain, we know that God loves us because there stands a permanent witness to the love of God. God demonstrated His love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, what? Christ died for us. Christ died for us. The crucifixion of Jesus stands as a permanent witness to the love of God. And any believer and any group of believers who've come to accept that Jesus died for us, we've come to embrace the love that God has shown toward us. Having been loved in God, we know that is true. If anybody knows that God loves us, it's believers. Unbelievers struggle with that, don't they? Unbelievers look at the world and they look at the quality of their lives. This is one of the routine arguments that atheists give. Which is, okay, well if God is such a loving God, then why is there so much evil in the world? Why is there so much hardship? Why is there so much tragedy? It is very common for human beings to look at the overall quality of our living conditions and to look at the tragedies that happen among us and conclude that God cannot be a loving God because if He were a loving God, He would do something about it. And the Scriptures tell us that God has done something about it. He hasn't done something to intervene and to stop every instance of the manifestation of the evil heart of man. Instead, God has done something about the root problem. The root problem is human sin. And the only solution for human sin is Jesus Christ. God did something about human sin. And if you don't accept that the family is a manifestation of that, and if you don't accept that the deterrence that government offers in the world is, is a manifestation of that, if you don't accept that the flood is a manifestation of that, at least accept that the crucifixion is. Because it stands out. It stands out. And you and I, while we may live with all kinds of uncertainties and the quality of our lives, we may look at it and say, well, you know, it's, 
I wish my life were better. And if God loved me, my life would be better. I wouldn't have all these health problems. I wouldn't have all these family problems. Our nation wouldn't have all of its problems. God just must not care about me. No, do not let yourself think that way. Instead, learn to look at what God has done, at what His Word says, manifests His love for us, and take security in that. It is a kind of love that transcends our world, that transcends our problems, and if anybody can live in the world knowing they've been loved, it is believers in Jesus Christ. And so in God we're ones having been loved. There's a second way, very quickly, in which we know we have been loved, and that is we've come in the realm of God into something that causes us to love one another. Love, coming to embrace God's love in Christ, means also that in the realm of Christ we display love to each other. By this shall all men know that you're my disciples. How? If you have love one to another. Our concern for each other, our willingness to take our own money and help one another in time of need, to feed one another, to clothe one another, to care for one another. Notice how I'm putting this now. It's not, again, it's not a, a, a way of, of virtue signaling where you just do this for unbelievers. No, it starts internally from a church caring for widows, from the verses we looked at a few weeks ago in James 2 and in 1 John 2. If you say that you love God, if you say you trust Him, what should appear in your life? You don't just tell a brother, be you warmed and filled. You actually undertake to care for him. If you cannot care for, that is if you shut up your bowels of compassion for your brother whom you have seen, how can you claim to love God whom you haven't seen? John writes in 1 John 2. The love of God brings us into the practice of love for each other. And notice that this kind of love isn't just an emotive love. It's not just what you feel in your gut or feel in your heart. It is a selflessness that moves you to action on behalf of someone else. And it's not merely because they've earned it. In fact, God's love was not given to us because we've earned it. We don't love people merely for who they are. The love of God exemplifies for us and calls us to a kind of love for others despite who they are. And so it brings us into the practice of forgiveness, of seeking reconciliation and peace. But what we have here is certainty. Certainty of position as called ones. We're ones having been loved of God. And then finally, and it needs its own equal treatment, but I'll just give you this quickly. We're ones having been kept in Jesus Christ. 
permanent, there is permanency to being in Christ. Period. Salvation is not offered and then taken away over and over and over again to be regained over and over and over again. It makes no sense even to conceive of a letter like Jude's with such a view of salvation. Because the struggle would always be a personal struggle for salvation and Jude is suggesting that because of the position that the recipients of his letter holds, that this brings them into a responsibility of contending for the faith which they're a part of, which was once and for all delivered unto the saints. It's not an individual struggle to achieve salvation. Salvation brings us into a bigger struggle, and that is because salvation brings us into a permanent relationship or standing with Jesus Christ. Notice now, and I'll leave you with a couple of thoughts here, notice now that such a, an understanding of salvation also means that Calvinism's enemy, Arminianism, is also an improper view of salvation. Salvation isn't something that you have momentarily and then you lose. The proper understanding of salvation means that we are brought into a permanent relationship with Jesus Christ on the basis of hearing the Word of God and a proper understanding and response to the Word of God. And when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, God declares us righteous. We can be said to be those who are absolutely certain of having been loved by God and in the realm of God. And then we also are permanently kept in this position by Jesus Christ Himself. Salvation is permanent. It's secure in any biblical understanding of it. You say, but what about people who claim to be believers, but then they go on and they live their lives however they want and there seems to be no change? The New Testament's clear on this. What the lifestyle tells you is that the claim to love God to begin with or the claim to trust in Christ or the claim to walk in the light and to be concerned about the truth is itself false. So there was never any genuine faith. There was never any genuine love. You are dealing with an unrepentant, unconverted person. So on the one hand, we can understand salvation as bringing us into this permanent position. We've been kept in Jesus Christ. And then this gives us the other part, and it's the part I'll leave you with, which is that we can leave here today knowing absolutely certain what our condition or standing with God is. We can know what our standing is. If you have put your faith in Jesus Christ, you can know that you are one having been kept, you're one having been preserved and standing preserved, just like love is presented as a permanent in a permanent way. So being kept is presented in a permanent way. You and I can leave here knowing that we are secure in our position and that that security is made possible by the agency of Jesus Christ.
We don't keep ourselves, but rather we're ones having been kept in or by Jesus Christ. He does the keeping. He does the saving. He does the justifying. He does the sanctifying. He does the keeping. All right. Three things about us that we know. If we're believers in Jesus Christ, we're called. And as called ones, there are two other things that we leave here knowing. We have been loved and we remain loved in God and we have been kept and we stand kept in or by Jesus Christ. This is very important. We should not look at the quality of our circumstances, but rather at the theological realities and the real world actions that God has accomplished in Jesus Christ and we can know based upon that what our standing with God is. We can leave assured. And then the last thing is once we are assured of our position, once we grasp that there's permanency to who we are, Next, we're going to pivot and see that that brings with it then the responsibility to engage in a struggle over truth and error. It's not just something we get to sit around and bask in and say, oh, look at how God looks at us and we're awaiting the return of Jesus and, and this kind of wonderful world in heaven. We may be doing that. All of that may be true, but there are also real-world responsibilities that our position brings with us. And we need to be certain about who we are so we can have a proper perspective as we go to engage in that struggle. Thank you all for being here this morning. I'm going to ask you to join me in standing.